VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, tributes are paid to Scotland and Rangers icon Walter Smith. Meanwhile, El Sacco comes up in the Premier League this weekend. It provides an opportunity for Oli and Nuno to save their jobs. We'll ask, are West Ham the real deal? What next for Barcelona after the sacking of Ronald Koeman? And should five subs be made permanent? This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wilsoncroft with you once again. This week, joining us, Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson of The Times. But we have to begin, gentlemen, with some very sad news, unfortunately, this week, because Scottish football has lost one of its icons, the former Rangers and Everton boss, Walter Smith. Ibrox fell silent last night ahead of Rangers game with Aberdeen in the Scottish Premiership. The crowd paid tribute to the man described as being up there with the managerial greatness of Shankly, Steen, Ferguson and Busby. The former Scotland boss died at the age of 73 this week. His achievement included 21 trophies across two spells with Rangers. The club said he embodied everything that a Ranger should be. His character and leadership was second to none and will live long in the memory of everyone he worked with. They went on to say Walter Smith was a friend to many, a leader, an ambassador and most of all, a legend. Uh, Gregor, I'll start with you on this. How how big a legend was Walter Smith in Scottish football? He's a titan. Walter Smith made my childhood very difficult growing up as a Celtic fan. (laughs) 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 Getting the nine in a row, that team of the 90s and McCoist and Haitley and Gorham and Loudrup. I've been really moved by the by the kind of scale and the breadth of the of the tributes to him, actually. Just, you know, as I say, he was a huge, huge, huge figure for Range in Rangers history. But then you kind of even though his time at Everton was quite a turbulent one, you still see that he was hugely respected and admired for working in difficult circumstances, you know, to sell a lot of his best players. I think I think the fans and and, oft, and the journalists too, the kind of media all really recognised a, a good man. A very good man. And then you see little kind of anecdotes from his time at Manchester United. I saw one from, from Darren Fletcher the other day that I hadn't, hadn't heard where he's saying, you know, in Cristiano Ronaldo's development, he was, Ronaldo's, when he first came over, he was, he was kind of getting kicked a lot in training. And Walter Smith had the idea of, of just banning fouls in training. And uh, and so Ronaldo was obviously getting booted all over the place. And then he, he quickly kind of learned and and start to pass the ball quickly, and then he started to, you know, one twos instead of trying to dribble past people and score and score goals. So you know, he's also he's also a very very good coach, highly highly respected coach. And then when I was in the Scotland under twenty ones, he he he'd taken over post uh, Bertie Votes, which was an awful era for Scotland, and he kind of transformed the atmosphere. He brought in. 
Tommy Burns, so kind of crossing the the old firm divide as his assistant. Tommy Burns was a a big friend of his, and Ali McCoist, and just transformed the atmosphere around the Scotland camp. And we used to we used to travel with the with with the full full international team, and and you saw you saw his kind of that was such a, a smart decision after what everything that had gone before. It's kind of united the the country and brought a bit of fun back to playing for the for the national team. But look, it's Rangers where he'll be remembered the most, and he he had the best team in Britain for a, a period of time in in the nineties. There, no question. The other thing is, you know, we talk about his, for someone who's such a a huge figure. A lot of the tributes have have noted how he was really self-deprecating. You know, he's not he wasn't pompous or full of himself. Or a lot a lot of these guys are 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 aware of how good they are. You know, <laughs> he would kind of play it down, which is a really really nice trait for someone of his stature and his abilities to have. So really moving some of the some of the reaction to this this week and very very sad. He mentioned Manchester United where he also went to assist at Sir Alex Ferguson for a period of time as well. Johnny, what, what was the man like, Walter Smith? Did you get a chance to meet him ever in your, your experience as a journalist? Yeah, Hugh, I, I, I knew Walter well and I, I really enjoyed listening to, to Gregor there because a lot of lovely and accurate comments about somebody who, I guess, well, you know, Walter... A bit like Gregor, he made he made my youth difficult because as an Aberdeen supporter, um, I wasn't any keener on Rangers conquering all than, uh, than Gregor was, I'm sure. And, and in fact, Walter took over at Rangers in '91 when Aberdeen were challenging for the title and, and and prevailed on the final day at Ibrox, which was really difficult. But he made my twenties successful and happy as a journalist because he was he was just such a decent man. Uh, I came into Scottish football writing in 95 when he was at his absolute pomp with that great team that, that, that Gregor talks about. Tommy Burns was the Celtic manager, but Walter was really the man. You know, he was he was ruling Scottish football and he had a combination between authority and he had this great sort of stony face that he could project, but a lot of fun and humanity as well. And you, you kind of got to learn that as a young journalist. You, you, you went from being kind of intimidated by him to realizing what a decent and a almost caring human being he was even towards you as a, as a journalist and, and really appreciating that. I mean, it, this, this sounds like the, the, you know, prehistoric ages, but if you wanted to get an interview at Rangers, you had to phone Walter Smith. There wasn't, I mean, they had a press officer, John Gregg was the press officer, but he didn't really, he didn't really do much. You had to phone Walter Smith and you phoned him. It wasn't mobile phones, you know, you, you phoned him um, at the, at the stadium, you got put through to his office and you, you asked Walter if you could speak to, you know, Stuart McCall or Eric Bo Anderson or, you know, Paul Gascoigne, and he'd say no, but you'd have to explain what your article was going to be and Walter would listen and, and he would say yes or no. He'd give you the player's phone number sometimes. And it, you were kind of answerable to him. You know, it, 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 was, it was that old-fashioned way. I think people in England saw how Fergie ran Manchester United. Walter ran Rangers in a similar way and was similarly important and when you dealt with them in press conferences they were great fun he had this real dry sense of humor but also the ability to to switch pretty quickly if there was a daft question and um and put on that stony face and that and that glare and you just found him a man of real values a terrific football coach what people maybe don't realize is that he was first of all renowned as a coach in scotland he was the coach of that great dundee united team Jim McLean was manager, Walter was the training ground guy and 
really made his name there with all the success they had. He was such a good coach that Fergie took him to the World Cup in 86 as his assistant, you know, renowned sort of figure from that Largs school. And then he was Graham Souness's coach at Rangers when Souness started the Rangers revolution. So he was almost like, he, he took over in management quite late, relatively in his career. If Souness hadn't left in that way, Walter might have stayed a coach, but he, he took over as manager and then I, I guess proved to be, you know, maybe Sue, you wouldn't mind me saying this, but, bet, but even better than him and, and more successful. I knew him at Everton. He was incredibly kind to me. I, I, I started, switched to reporting on the north of England and found Walter, you know, just really an ally, really, really accommodating, invited me into the club, gave me a couple of great interviews, meant that I had a, a connection there straight away. And I'm not surprised to hear Gregor talk about his effect on players because he did have that, as I said, that ability to make people feel comfortable and enjoy themselves, but also respect him. And he was self-deprecating. The tributes of him being up there with Steen and Fergie, I think he'd, if he was around, he would laugh at that and he would, he would have a wisecrack. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd sort of say something quite kind of quite kind of commonsensical and, and, and funny to, to dispel that. But there's a truth to it without a doubt. And I suppose the final thing to share is just tributes have talked about his effect on people. An image I've got is being at a manager's lunch at Haydock and being a slightly kind of tense atmosphere because Fergie was there and Fergie wasn't pleased at something that Neil Custis and the Sun had written. And it was, it was one of those. And Walter arrived and it just, you saw Fergie light up like a kid. You know, he, he it changed his mood. He pulled up, he, he made a space beside him and Walter sat down and um, the whole the whole atmosphere transformed because he was a special character. Um, and he, he represents to me where I feel I come from in, in, in football terms, a kind of Scottish way of doing things where, you know, we love the game. We really love the game, but we maybe also see it for what it is and don't take it absolutely pompously and seriously. And I think Walter embodied all of those things and, and as I say growing up as an Aberdeen fan if you'd said to me you'd, you'd feel the way that I'd, I'd feel about Walter as a, as a Rangers figure I'd say no chance but if you met him you couldn't help be, be touched by the guy he was Just finally on it Johnny he has been described this week as being up with the likes of Bill Shankly and Jock Steen and Sir Alex Ferguson and Sir Matt Busby where, where do you place him in, in certainly the Scottish Football Hall of Fame I think in Scottish terms, that's that's right. He built Rangers uh, it, it, and and succeeded with nine. You know, nine in a row was so big, was so big, and only Jock, you know, Jock Steen had done it. So to equal Jock Steen's in, incredible. Um, I'd say in Scottish football terms, yes, what he did with the national team was was probably the start of a process that we're now seeing. I guess it didn't. He didn't quite make the same mark in England. It was a difficult job for him at Everton. Um, but then Jock Steen didn't make particularly a mark in England when he had a brief spell. So I would say it's a fair tribute and his imprint is is going to be there at Rangers forever. That is uh, our tribute to Walter Smith, the former Rangers Scotland and Everton boss, uh, who's died at the age of 73. Sad news for everyone concerned uh, with Scottish football. Um, let's move on, though. And this week's football, I think, has to come onto the agenda, of course. Manchester City. Their four-year winning run has come to an end in the EFL Cup. They had 21 ties unbeaten in the competition, but have eventually succumbed to another Scottish football manager. Who knows if he will make the Hall of Fame one day. David Moyes, obstinate West Ham United, uh, beating Manchester City on penalties. Phil Foden with the key miss after a goal of straw. Johnny, I'll come back to you on this one. 
We haven't had your views on West Ham of late. Is it time we take them really seriously now? Yeah, I, 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 was, at, I was at Leicester's um, uh, EFL Cup game last night against Brighton and talking talk to a couple of my mates who are Leicester fans. And we were drawing parallels between West Ham and, 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 and Leicester. I'm not saying that they're going to do what, what Leicester did in 2015-16 because the top clubs have moved on that little bit more. But there are parallels. They are are such a well-put-together football team with such unity, with such a kind of balance to to what they do on the pitch that they are, you know, I I don't use that horrible term, best of the rest, but, you know, in fact, they're better than that. I, I, I I think the top three... Are, are just beyond but I think you know West West Ham could get fourth spot this season no doubt about it and what's great about it from their point of view is what this season's proved is that there's something permanent now or, or something long term there the success of last year wasn't a fluke they've got the same appetite they're even better on the pitch this year they can win something they can win that they can win that cup or they can win the Europa and they can finish fourth what, what a team what do you think Tom we're going to take them really, really seriously this season in terms of what they might achieve. Absolutely. I think we've been taking them quite seriously for a while in terms of Moyes' success. But I mean, just look at the team as well. Look at the team he put out. I actually wasn't following the games last night. And then when I was checking in on the scores, I kind of thought, all oh, right, well, West Ham, good for them. They're really going for it. And actually, it was a much changed team. You know, you've got Yarmolenko playing, Noble starting, Mazuaku. And that, to me, says a hell of a lot about Moyes and what he's done to that team and that squad and that club. You know, you've got this, we are West Ham, this is our identity, pervading the entire team and and squad. And the fact that they can go out and play a Manchester City side and still do all those West Ham things that we know Moyes for and, and get a draw and then take it to penalties. I think we have to take them very seriously. And it also, for West Ham fans, the competing in the league is brilliant. But, you know, having a shot at a trophy, progressing in this competition, you know, we poo-poo it quite a lot. We've talked about it. It needs reformatting. It needs to change. If West Ham win it, we'll be talking about how brilliant it is because it's a chance for a team to win a trophy and uh, who haven't won it for a while and, and stop Man City winning it all the time. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I definitely think we'll be delighted. Um, but what do you think the ceiling is? Gregor for this West Ham United squad could they win the EFL Cup maybe win even more they could definitely win it you know Tom's touched on the <laughs> every round you have this conversation about what the EFL you just got to accept it for what it is now you know there will be some changes in, in teams personnel and whatnot, but it still throws up some great entertainment and it gives you know I know this is the first was it Manchester United uh, Manchester City have won the last four is it so it still throws up the odd surprise, and this this was one very much so. Um, but you know, Brentford going through. There's a chance for another team to to lift the trophy, absolutely. And on West Ham, it, uh, the ceil- Johnny's right. The ceiling is the, the the top three are far and away better than anyone else. And then there's nothing to say that West Ham can't finish above above the rest because there's no one that's really sort of blown us away so far. Arsenal are kind of starting to look like they're coming back they're coming back a bit. Manchester United are in disarray. Tottenham are looking really shaky. It's not easy to see who that who, who's going to take the fourth place. And and West Ham looked the most solid, organised and as the word I used the other day, just energised. They, they look like they look like they're full of desire and, and uh, commitment to 
to what they're being asked to do. Moyes deserves enormous credit. I think, you know, the, uh, how many of us saw this coming? Johnny might have. Johnny's, Johnny kind of has known Moyes for a long time. He's worked uh, someone else he's knew, known from his time at Everton and stuff. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure many of us could have predicted this. I think people were speaking pretty disparagingly of Moyes when he when he was at West Ham the first time round. And, you know, although he kept him, he saved them from from relegation, it was like, what else is he going to really do? How far is he going to take them? He's a, he looked, he was a bit of a man of the past, it seemed. But he's not. I think he's, he's obviously cultivated a really good kind of atmosphere and culture there, which is so important. And he's getting players to play for him. And he's signing really smartly. Also, all the other all the stuff that's been going on in the background of West Ham and the stadium and the atmosphere. And, and as I say, Moyes, West Ham fans saw him as all those things, <laughs> all those things of kind of yesterday's man. What is he? It's not going to be not going to be exciting football with Moyes at the helm. He's overcome all of that. It's an outstanding job. So yeah, but there's no reason to see why it can't continue as well. One thing I just briefly wanted to ask Johnny about is it strikes me with Moyes in this West Ham setup, and there was a lot of it when you think about who he was allowed to bring in in terms of his coaching staff. It strikes me, and when you look at them on the touchline, that they look a very unified coaching team behind him as the figurehead. And, you know, we've we've talked recently about Solskjaer and Manchester United, and we'll talk about them again. And some of the things you were saying about Walter Smith in terms of what he did with whether he was an assistant or who he had in, do you think that's a big part of West Ham's success, that he's got the, the, the people behind him that he wants and they're all working together in a kind of unified fashion? I do, and, and it's, it's funny that, Maybe the one question mark I had about this season was Alan Irvin's departure because Alan's been very important in some of David's best teams. Is a you know is another kind of self-deprecating, quite sort of dryly funny Scott and quite a good foil for Moises' intensity sometimes. So I wondered how they'd get on without him. But actually, the strength of of that coaching team is is, is to the fore because uh, they've dealt they've dealt with that really well. And and I think he's I think there's a nice balance there. Paul Nevins and, and you know probably and Kevin Nolan are quite important because they're new elements to to um, where David was before in his first time round and it is important for managers to keep refreshing themselves. Fergie always did it in terms of having you know good assistants who bring something different around them. Undoubtedly, and I think Mark Noble probably needs a mention as well because he's almost part of that coaching team as well. You know, he's 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 he is the the coach in the squad as it were and the conduit. And the kind of keeper of the values, and Declan Rice is almost a personal project for him in terms of shaping him into being another Mister West Ham, if he can. So there is a lot behind the scenes as well. And yes, David's probably delegating a little bit more than 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 he he maybe did first time round as well, because everything's going so well, and and that that will help him because management's changed in the Premier League, and the days of those all powerful managers who do everything. It can't be done anymore. So you think of Klopp and Linders, and you, you think of Thomas Tuchel and people Anthony Barry around him. You have to you have to delegate, and uh, yeah, it's it's a big part of the successor. Just finally, Johnny, maybe you think it's too soon to tell, but is this David Moyes' best job in English football? Formerly at Preston, Everton, Manchester United, and Sunderland, of course. It's difficult because Everton was so good, and you know, am I surprised it was happening? Well, it, it's just what he did at Everton. Maybe there's a surprise that you can go and do it again because um, it's just difficult. To, I, th- I thought Everton was such an incredible job. Can you ever repeat that? But you know, th- he had Everton as a top seven team for um, eight or nine years in a row, which is just ludicrous. Top four, a couple of years. I think it's up there, but if he can win something, it will be his best 
And there is an argument to say that the club, the environment that he came into was a bit more difficult than the Everton one, where it was quite cosy with Bill Ken right there as chairman and so on. And, you know, there's more politics for West Ham. So it's a, it's a score draw at the moment, but West Ham could end up edging it. Also, the landscape's changed in that time. Like you've got yeah. to say that yeah. the Premier League is a very different place now and the gulf between the, the kind of level he's working at with these two clubs and the top is has become vast. So yeah, if he was to get in the you know, if he's to get in the top four, they you know, they flirted with it last season, it's got to be right up there because that's that would be an enormous feat. Well, if they are to get into the top four, West Ham United, they could be taking the place of either Spurs, well, probably not Spurs, but more likely Manchester United. They played this weekend. It's a huge game for both managers. We'll discuss that next on the game. So Saturday tea time sees Tottenham Hotspur hosting Manchester United in the Premier League. We all know Manchester United were thrashed by Liverpool last time out in the league. Spurs were beaten by West Ham, although they did get the win over Burnley in the EFL Cup in midweek. Spurs sit sixth, five wins and four defeats from their nine games. Manchester United just behind in seventh, four wins, two draws and three defeats. Johnny, let's talk Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. You still supporting (laughs) Spurs, Atalanta and Manchester City. He put out like a three-game battle cry saying we've got to get our season back on track. Reading between the lines, it might be that he's got three games to save his job. Do you think that's right? Oh, it's b- bad line here. Can't quite hear you there. What, what, what's, <laughs> that, what's that about, Ollie? <laughs> um, yeah, I was. Yeah, I wasn't looking forward to this bit of the um, the show. Um, where do we start? Um, first of all, to try and guess where the Glazers are going, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna try. Only to say a reported on Manchester United long enough to to know when someone's in trouble and he's in trouble at the moment. Um, another starting point would be, and this is a pro Oli starting point, which might not surprise you, but I think you've got to recognise that he has done, in my opinion, he's done the best. He's, he's been the most, the best fit, the most likely Manchester United manager since Fergie. And he's, and he's improved and, and transformed where that club is over the last three years to this point. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, be away with the fairies and pretend that it's now on course and, and that he's meddling at the wheel and the success ahead. The last seven or eight games, in fact, the whole season has has been retrograde. And the que- that my stance on Ollie was, as you know, always that he was developing United and deserved this season to to then kind of bring home what he'd been working for. And bringing it home certainly meant trophies and, and challenging for the league title. It's not happening at the moment. He's crucially, I think he's tried to transition the team to a more assertive, proactive style, which they had to. You couldn't keep being a counter-attacking Manchester United side. And it is rather looking like that's out with his grasp. And if that's out with his grasp, then they, they do need someone else because Manchester United, as I say, have to have to play that football and they have to win things. It couldn't really have gone worth the season from the starting point of of Ronaldo and Sancho coming in and Varane coming in. I don't know where that leaves my defensive of Oli. I'll just say that, you know, <laughs> he in has... Tatters. In tatters. <laughs> probably, probably in the bin, but I think you have, I think wherever United go now, they cannot relinquish the good things that he's built and they have to be mindful of the values he's put in, the way he's managed the environment so well until the last few weeks. Whoever they go for next, if they, if they are going to make a change... 
has to build on what he's done and not you know rip it up and change course again. But I just hope that at the top they actually know what they're looking at, and that's always been my doubt. Does Edward Wood and the Glazers? Do they actually know when they look at Manchester United on the pitch and also in bigger terms in terms of what the club is? Do they actually know what they're looking at? I've never been sure. That's a really interesting point. You know, you said you wouldn't guess what the Glazers are trying to do. I, I won't as a Manchester United fan either. All I would say is I think you're right about, you know, the club not forgetting what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has bought, which for me means they need to act before the atmosphere becomes toxic because he has been so good at transforming, you know, the spirit of the club, if you like, to get it back to a, a really good point. The fans, the, the, the players, the staff, you know, happy and together. And that was, what, a five or six year process of that not being the case. So in that regard, he's done a fantastic job. But um, but if I was the Glazers, if, well, I say if I was the Glazers, if I was the Glazers and I knew anything about football, I wouldn't want to go <laughs> it, it, it to go back to that point. Did you see the piece in in uh, Patrick Sevra's uh, yeah. serialisation of his book this week in the Times, which is looks like it's going to be a great read, yeah. You know, all the kind of the way that David Moyes' time at United kind of seemed doomed from the start and then fell apart bit by bit. And then uh, the reason I'm saying this is Ed Woodward called in four or five senior players to his office and said, is David Moyes still the man to, to lead us forward? I've been at clubs where that's happened and I've heard of instances where it would, but I didn't expect that to happen at Manchester United. I think that said quite a lot about Ed Woodward as well. I wonder what the answer would be now if the same question was asked about Solskjaer and it would be important who he asked it to. And then that's the other thing. Who are the yeah. leaders? Who are the people you bring into your office and say, now, guys, is Ollie still the man to be at the wheel? Because I can't pick out who it would be. Can you? No. Who would be I the mean, guys? Who, who would he call into his office now? Well, who, who are the genuine leaders in, in, in the squad? It's a, great, it's a great question. I don't know. Harry Maguire, because Harry he's the captain, but I made my views clear last the, the other day about him. I really, I'm not sure. You, Scott you, McTominay. McTominay, maybe. Pogba would probably be in it. And then yeah. you, that's just, that just sums it up. Yeah. So uh, it's, that, that, that's, that's, that's like pretty stark, I think. It's very interesting. It's been doing the rounds this week, the Roy Keane uh, Sky interview from two years ago, where he talked about the players through Mourinho underbus. They'll do the same to Solskjaer. And I actually watched the full clip and this is giving my good mate Gregor Robertson some rare bit of credit rather than falling out. But it is it was word for word like what Greg has been saying for ages about lack of leaders. There's no one in that dressing room. Who are the young players looking at and going, I want to be like him? And when you think about that and you reflect on Solskjaer, someone who I've been critical of in terms of his coaching ability, you kind of think, well, he was always buggered and the next guy will be completely buggered as well because... You know, and as Gregor said, you can bring Conte in and you can play wing backs for a bit and maybe that'll work, but ultimately we'll come back to this point again. So yeah, it, it was just interesting reflecting on that that you can go back to a piece of sky punditry from two years ago and you think we're still here now <laughs> in terms of discussing Manchester United. The game is being dubbed El Sakico, though, because, of course, <laughs> Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is under pressure. But so, too, is Nuno Espirito Santo at Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, Gregor, how much patience do you think the Spurs fans should be having with Nuno right now, given he only took over this summer? How much they should have and how much they will have are probably two different different points. I think, I think they should have some patience. I think he deserves to play out this season, absolutely. But... You do want to start seeing some progress at some point, and I, as I say, I really I'm I'm struggling to see it. I just think it looks so disjointed and slow and pedestrian uh, an attack, 
and there doesn't seem to be the same kind of you know I've talked about energy and intensity in West Ham and that's the kind of prerequisite and you're not really seeing that from Spurs so I think patience is already beginning to wear very thin with Spurs fans and I think they're probably feeling quite disillusioned about the direction of the football club for many reasons and one of which is the fact that he got the job in the first place and they spent so long and looked at so many people and ended up with Nuno it seemed like a kind of we have to go with this guy now and I think we're probably seeing the results of that on the pitch now Tom what sort of game are you expecting here will Ole Gunnar Solskjaer go back to being a counter-attacking side will Tottenham sit in will it be turgid will it be nervy will it definitely be nervy won't it I mean (laughs) I actually wouldn't be surprised if Manchester United won, based largely, as we were saying on Monday, from having watched Tottenham against West Ham and thinking, God, Nuno's very lucky that Man United have got smashed here because otherwise we'd all be talking about how bad they were because I think Tottenham were really, really poor. Paul Hurst's written in a very interesting piece today talking about what Solskjaer can do tactically. We talked about it before the, the Liverpool game. I think he obviously has to change something, has to do something different. I mean, if he picks the same team again, I mean, you are just, even if they win and he picks the same team again, that to me will be a, a massive kind of open goal for all his critics that, in terms of his coaching ability. I would like to think he'll do something brave, whether it's drop Ronaldo, whether it's drop Fernandez, change the system a little bit. Obviously, you know, Paul Pogba got himself sent off, so he can't, he can't help out by bringing him into midfield. I wouldn't be surprised to see Manchester United win, to be honest, because I think Tottenham are really poor at the minute. And I think, well, it will ultimately be a sign of whether those players have given up on Solskjaer, won't it? In terms of what Gregor was saying, whether, you know, is, is, is Moyes right for the job? Is Solskjaer right for the job? This will be the sign, won't it? We'll see it in the first 20 minutes in terms of their intensity, in terms of their, you know, all the basics, all the cliches, but we'll see, won't we? And that was just something I wanted to briefly come back to and ask Johnny about. You know, we talked at the start of the show about Walter Smith, the kind of this kind of old school manager who had all kind of control over the club. You've heard his former players this week talk about him in such glowing terms. That's one thing, even as a critic of Solskjaer, I found slightly uncomfortable given how much effect he's had on changing that spirit, as you said, Hugh. And to then see the kind of modern day players PR machine kick into life, the, the tweets, the Instagrams, oh, we let the fans down, blah, 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 and all this kind of crap, let's be honest, that comes out. And it just, I don't know whether it's because it's Solskjaer and whether he seems like a nice bloke and whether he's a club hero or what, I don't know. But I found myself feeling a bit sorry for him in that respect. And it made me reflect on the, the cycle of a manager and how it can, you know, the players have all the control because there's no doubt these players have let him down as well as letting the fans down. And I just wondered whether we're at a bit of a strange, maybe worrying point in terms of all the control that the players have over these narratives and the lack of responsibility that they can take. I don't know. It's a pretty big question for you, yeah. Johnny. I don't know if you've got any <laughs> no, answers. No, 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 no. no, no, no. I, I, I know where you're coming from and I'd add in, you know, Harry Maguire, you've, I think you know, I know you talked about it, but Harry Maguire's interview post-match, you know, he, he, he just stuck to the PR line that he'd been briefed by whoever it was. It's not good enough, and he actually he, he he actually sort of said, "Oh, I keep coming back to that line. It's not good enough." It's like he he learned a script. And that's your captain, you know, just trying to stick to a PR script that instead of speaking from the heart and, and the self protection involved in that, because someone's told him what you can say without you know compromising yourself, and you shouldn't be thinking about that. You should be communicating directly to the fans and apologising to everyone. And 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 yeah, Ollie has talked quite a lot about social media and and 
sort of in his mild way tried to say that players shouldn't really be on it or tried to warn them off it which by the way is unrealistic <clears throat> you know we can't turn the clock back but I do find that part of the circus at Manchester United especially you add in the the ready briefings that take place when a manager's in trouble not just at United but at, at, at all clubs when discontented players want to put their stories out there which isn't a totally new thing that's been going on of course all the time I've been in journalism but not not to the extent it is now. How does that work, Johnny? Well, it's agents. You, you know, there, there, there are, you phone up. Okay, so you've got a club in crisis. Um, you realise that you're asked to get a kind of behind-the-scenes story. You're looking for um, dressing room gossip. You, you ring around the agents and um, ones who might have a player who's not playing or who want to kind of score points will, will tell you, well, yeah, you know, Training's been rubbish, and we've been reading with Man United, haven't we? You know they don't like training; it's a bit basic. Oh well, you know, he, he's, you know they do they, they they still want to play for the club, but they're not sure about his team talks, all that kind of stuff. There's little there's little messages, and it's a way of un, unsettling uh, or destabilising the the manager. I was just going to say I, I I did a piece with Nagelsmann a couple of weeks ago, and one thing that struck me because he's of a completely different generation the same generation as the players, really. And he used this phrase, which I found really interesting. I was asking him, how did you, you know, as a 28-year-old manager in the Bundesliga, how did you go in and, um, you know, assert yourself over a dressing room where some of the players were older than you? And he said, um, he said, you have to convince players by content. Uh, and that was kind of, I think that's true of, of modern players. You convince them by content, i.e. it probably is now down to the, the, the tactics the game plan, uh, the level of analysis—you know—that that, that they have they have to buy into that. That's what they're looking for. That's clearly what Klopp and Guardiola and Tuchel are able to do. That natural respect for authority isn't there anymore. So you almost have to sell yourself to them through content. That, 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 that was that was a fascinating phrase. I thought hated the PR stuff that came out after this game as a Man United fan. Uh, to use a tabloid term, Marcus Rashford broke his silence on Twitter uh, after that five nil defeat to Liverpool. He said, "I can't lie. You haven't heard from me on here because as a United fan, I didn't really know what to say after Sunday. I was embarrassed. I am embarrassed. Our fans are everything, and you didn't deserve that. We're trying hard." To try and fix this, grammar police, uh, we have to redeem ourselves. By the way, Bruno Fernandes didn't tweet a, a, an emotional apology this time around. So can I just ask the Man United players to be consistent? I'm expecting apologies uh, every time you, there's a bad result from here on out. Look, I, I don't know how the Man United players get, get over this. I think it's all going to be on the manager and we will see if Roy Keane is right and they throw another manager under the bus in his words and we of course will react to that game on Monday um, up next we're going to be talking about Barcelona let's let's say a giant club in the history of football has sacked its former player who scored a winning goal in a European Cup final for them that's all I'm saying uh, that's next on the game <laughs> the train is now approaching junction at platform iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mm-hmm. 
Ronald Koeman has been sacked as Barcelona's head coach after just 14 months in charge at the new Camp. Uh, Barcelona picking up 15 points from 10 games in Liga this season. They've already been beaten twice in the group stage of the Champions League. They sit ninth in the table. They're six points adrift of the leaders uh, after losing against Rio Vallecano on Wednesday. It was their third defeat in the past four games. Of course, they were beaten in El Clasico against Real Madrid at the weekend as well. Uh, Ian Hawkey, our European football specialist, joins us. Just tell us why you think Ronald Koeman was sacked. Is it purely results? Was there more to this? Results are, are clearly important. Losing to Rio Vallecano is a humiliation. They've They've only just been promoted and they're a very low-budget club. On the back of having lost a Clasico at home at the weekend, that's obviously a, a factor as well. There's an urgent problem looming. As you said, Barcelona are, are, are well below par in the Champions League. They've got to play Dinamo Kiev on Tuesday and that really is a must-win because they lost their first two matches so heavily. There's an urgent need for some sort of change of direction um, I think there's another factor as well. Um, you know, crowds are only just back, really, in Spanish football. And we saw a, a very big one, although not a full stadium in the Clasico. And at a club where the president is elected by the fans, that's, you know, that's powerful. Um, I think the club were aware that crowds back were going to, going to give a form of expression of disquiet at the whole situation. And in fact, Ronald Koeman himself encountered that in a rather unpleasant way on Sunday, driving out of... Camp New after the Classico, his his car was stopped and abuse was hurled at him. So all this adds to the the urgency of the uh, the situation. But but overall, you have to say that that Kuman coming to a club with so many problems, such big debts, so little spending power. It, it, it was a thankless task. That's what I was going to ask you about. Um, it seems like he's almost the fall guy for all the difficulty going on at Barcelona. I mean, if he could have spent the money that others have spent in the past and built the squad his own way, it could have been a very different story. I mean, yes, he's responsible for some of the players coming into the club who we might not see as being Barcelona players in inverted commas, but he, he also had his hands tied behind his back somewhat. Yes, he did. But but the other the other way of telling the story is that Ronald Koeman probably wouldn't have got the job last summer if Barcelona had had money to spend and uh, the, the the positive outlook that 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 I guess we've become used to over the last fifteen years at Barcelona. Yeah, he's got a mixed record as a as a club coach, as as Evertonians will probably tell you. So it was an opportunity for him. And yes, he hasn't, he certainly hasn't done as well as he had imagined he would. Um, and he will have some regrets about um, not being given a little longer because there, there's a flicker of light because some young players are coming through quite well. And Human's big selling point when the results weren't going well was that he, he is a good man to bring through the young players, but uh, but now Barcelona will will decide that somebody else is is appropriate for that. Before I move on to who might take over from Koeman, how much responsibility do you think the players bear in all of this? Yeah, a, a, a fair amount. I mean, they've they've lost um, a leader clearly in in Lionel Messi. So any team that had been so built around one player for so long are going to feel a bit orphaned. When that happens, actually, last last night was a was a was a snapshot into the declining performance of some of the 
the pillars of the team. The goal, the Rio Vallecano goal, came directly from a mistake by Sergio Busquets. And then Radamel Falcao, who's no spring chicken, as you know, uh, sort of bamboozled Gerard Piquet. So, yeah, it, it was... It, it was it was not a happy sight for for those who remember Busquets and Piquet as sort of peerless in their in their positions. So uh, I mean the, the veterans are not what they were, but you know it, it, it's a very unbalanced squad. You've got you've got these thirty somethings, and then you've got a bunch of you know teenagers who who are the the hope for the future, but in a way not much in between. So it's a classic uh, transition issue um, and. And uh, yeah, and Kuman wasn't up to managing that sufficiently. I mean, mid-table for Barcelona is is very alarming in La Liga, and and the fact that in the last year they they just habitually lose very heavily to to, to big clubs, PSG, Juventus, Bayern Munich, and so on. Ian, you talked then about some of the players and the kind of lack of spending, but they they have still bought in quite a lot of players, haven't they, over the last few seasons? Obviously, to, and to the outside, to the kind of casual European football observer, you're seeing some names like Memphis Depay, but then you're also seeing names like Frankie de Jong, who everyone got excited about in that IX team. Has, has everyone kind of flopped? Is there anyone that's you know been been doing doing well, or is it one of these kind of symptomatic things, a little bit like Manchester United, where they're signing players after player after player? And none of it's working. Doesn't matter whether it's experience. Doesn't matter whether it's youth. There's something rotten at the very core of the club that just seems to be infecting all these new signings. No, I mean it, 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 there's there's a there's a variety. Uh, Frankie de Jong has blown hot and cold, but I think for a player of his age and coming into a new club, that's forgivable. He's you know he 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 every so often looks looks like the all round creative but responsible midfielder that that Barcelona would like him to be I, I, I you know I think there's I, I don't think I don't think he's he's in the category of players like Philippe Coutinho for instance um, going back a little bit further to the source of of some of the debt uh, Memphis Depay has has been a breath of fresh air actually in a you know in a in a dusty problematic place but uh, the last few games, including the Classico, he wasn't great, which is disappointing because, you know, he's he's a player that can give a lot of verve to a team. So in terms of the, the relatively new signings, um, you know, I, th- I think it, it, it varies. Remember, Memphis Defy was free. That's, that's, that's why he could come in. Uh, Sergio Aguero was, was free and has been injured for most of the time since. But um, he's... He's collected some minutes now, and and he's looked okay. He's looked like potentially the finisher that they're they're lacking. But as you know, Sergio Aguero, it's difficult to guarantee that he's going to be starting every game at his age and his state of fitness. So yeah, it's uh, there's a variety, but 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 as Hugh mentioned earlier, there is a sense that the newcomers aren't Barcelona players because they're coming free. Because they're not world superstars, and and there's a particular, particular symbol of this is is Luke de Jong, who, as you know, is really a target man, and has and and some would say a journeyman, um, and he came in on loan uh, to replace Antoine Griezmann, who was taken off the wage bill, and he is associated very much with Kuman, and he is unfortunately associated very much with the kind of sighing debt-ridden Barca have to cope with at the moment. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a mixed bag, and, it, and, you know, it's clearly an unbalanced squad. Either age is against them or inexperience is against them. And, and you know, and, and important positions on the pitch aren't, aren't filled adequately. Nothing wrong, by the way, with being a journeyman, Ian. Come on, even Gregor Robertson will tell you that. Um, <laughs> just finally, before we move on, Ian, just I know a lot of people saying Xavi Hernandez, a former captain, a midfielder, could be the next coach. Is that is that nailed on? Do you think there might be another name uh, coming through the doors to replace Koeman in the dugout? Um, well, I, I think there's quite likely to be a caretaker, given the timetable, but that will not be a name that's... Um, trips off the tongue to many people. It'll be an, an internal appointment. If it's not Xavi Hernandez, it's very, very unlikely to be a big name because because there's a financial problem. Whoever takes the Barcelona job will take that job on a less than elite salary. And Ronald Koeman may be waiting a while for his payoff as well. You know, it's 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 that difficult to um, to get liquidity in that club at the moment for, for various reasons. Although with crowds back, uh, whoever takes over Barcelona will be will be told very strongly that, that things are going to get better soon and there'll be some spending muscle around the corner. But in the meantime, whoever takes over will have to be patient. And, and certainly uh, Xavi Hernandez is the one they want and will be very warmly welcomed by, by the fans because of his playing past. Our thanks to Ian Hawkey with the latest on Barcelona and who might take over at the camp now. Uh, Before we go, let's get back to Tom Greger and Johnny. Um, We have to talk about Martin Ziegler's excellent exclusive in the Times this week. Five substitutions in football is set to become permanent. Uh, Three opportunities to make those changes within the game will stay as well. IFAB, we know the international lawmakers, um, recommended the proposal at a meeting this week. One insider said uh, those present in the meeting generally agreed that five substitutions was good for the game. Gregor Robertson, is it good for the game? No. That's it. <laughs> I thought you know we had this whole conversation, and I kind of there was a you, the part of you could see it when we were living through some unprecedented times. But all the all the same arguments still stand about how much it entrenches the kind of superiority of clubs with more money and bigger squads and more quality on the uh, on the bench. It just kind of blows my mind that that no one that no one can see this, and it also clearly. There's there's an issue with with players being the player with players workloads, and that's something we've spoken about numerous occasions on this podcast. But if this is if this is going to be seen as a step towards alleviating the 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 work the players workloads, then it's also a bit worrying because like it may not stop here, and the game's transformed. I also I also thought watching watching games during lockdown and whatnot when you saw, you know, I think Man United was, did five subs at once in one game and. You know, just seeing five subs from any team in the second half of a game, it completely changes, transforms the complexion of of the game. You're changing half your outfield team. It's like <laughs> it's 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 obviously going to change the game, and I don't I don't think that's a positive thing personally. Not just for the reason that I said about you know the be- the bigger better teams having have more opportunity to to impose their superiority on the on on proceedings midway through a game or during a during a game, but just because it changes the the feel and the the spectacle completely 
it changes the sport as a whole. Absolutely, it, 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 it is now it is now a different sport. Um, you know, we had a, a period where there was one substitution. Now there there are three substitutions, so it has changed before. But I think you take it into the context of a sport that has eleven players. So you know, the the need to change half your outfield, both sides do the same with twenty minutes to play. I mean, energy alone, you know, I, I know a lot of people have the argument about quality. You can bring five quality players off the bench. Just bringing five fresh players off the yeah. bench in the final 25, 20 minutes, um, if both teams did that, it is a different game. You know, it is a totally different game. You know, you play for an hour and then, you, you know, if both teams decide, which it probably would be the case, you know, everyone just throws on fresh legs at the end. And you get two matches, essentially. I mean, it totally changes what the sport is. You know, just bring five quick players on into your forward line, for example, if you're a goal down. I mean, it massively changes your ability to to get a result in a football match. I just find it to be perverse that anyone would say it's good for the game. That's all true. But for me, the other thing that's hovering in my mind is it's a worrying development. And I think it might not be the end of this because we're not going to see governing bodies give up competitions or say or like reduce the fixture load so this is the alternative if if players are going to start you know we saw Tiba we spoke about Tiba Courtois coming out and saying this is all about money this is this is a scandal basically we're getting worked to <laughs> work to death this is the easiest out for them okay you can it's up to your managers now you can you can be given much more of a rest much more easily now that's more likely to happen and to continue down this path rather than saying okay okay We'll, we'll we'll cut the fixture list. We'll cut the we'll cut the the workload on you that way. So it's it's a bit of a worrying start for me. It's probably the lack of sleep as a new parent, but I definitely think Robertson's taken over my role as the most cynical <laughs> on this podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> and I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. I'll I'll bring the positivity. Occasionally, substitutes can change a game for the better. And in terms of our enjoyment, both as journalists as fans, when you see a manager make changes to disrupt a game to change a game back in their favor that's a really fascinating thing to witness the point is that's probably only ever two changes max a tweak in formation a new a new rapid guy out wide and the game becomes a different a different spectacle and it's really exciting but no i can't i can't be positive about five substitutes because it does feed into all the things greg has talked about in a very cynical way it's also a fact that when you watch a game we talk so much about how teams are set up and tactics and working out what a team are. Actually, quite a lot of the best teams or teams that are playing really well don't really make any substitutes until late on in the game. When a team is taking a match incredibly seriously and they're happy with their setup and everything is going to plan, they don't make any substitutes until maybe like the last five minutes, either to kill a bit of time, to rest someone who's scored two goals and had you know done a brilliant job. That is when football is at its best is when teams have been set up and two teams are going head-to-head and actually maybe you see one change each team. It sets a worrying precedent in terms of some of the things Greg has talked about. It's a bit of a strange one, really, that anyone would say it's a good thing. Johnny, where does this rank on the games gone meter for you? <laughs> <laughs> is it up there? Oh, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's another thing that makes me feel my age. My goodness, five substitutions. Games gone. Um, I, was, I mentioned being at the Leicester-Brighton game last night and both teams made five substitutions. I was just thinking about listening to Tom there and thinking about what he was saying. And on a, it was funny because on an intellectual level, it was interesting watching Potter and Rogers, who are very interesting coaches, using the substitutions and and how they sort of slightly tweaked uh, their approach with each substitution. But on a visceral level, on an intensity level, it just made that further air out of the game, as it were. 
it was a it was a just just added to the sense that uh, we're, we're just kind of doing a bit of a training exercise and then we're going to have penalties at the end. And um, I do, I, I wonder about accountability. You know, like, I think one of the things that's great about football is is there's an accountability if you're in the starting 11. You've got to justify that place. There's an accountability to the manager to get the right 11 and the right approach. A sort of jeopardy that if you don't, and I think it takes that away. I think it allows people to, it allows players off the hook you know, if you become that player that just comes on and plays 20 minutes a time in cruise through a season, being the kind of, you know, substitution guy and the manager can, you know, if he's got a big squad, if he's at a rich club, he can kind of get away with mistakes really. He can he just bring a few guys off the bench and, and repair the damage. So I don't like it from that point of view. It's a good interesting point though, interesting point though about the kind of intellectual challenge that springs to mind. Barnsley last season, we spoke about where they played the most high intense pressing game of any team in the country and every almost every game they changed their whole front three at some point in the second half to maintain the intensity of the pressing so that was a tactic employed so you know it makes bring up the interesting things like that but it doesn't feel right it just doesn't feel right as Johnny said from a, a kind of visceral level it feels it feels like a kind of pre-season thing as well if you see that many that many changes going on you think I don't know a big part of you thinks it would only happen when it, it doesn't really matter the game doesn't really matter I don't think anyone would throw on five subs not in one go or anything to kind of win the game it's like we've seen we're going to see this game out now and we'll change I think that's the more likely of the thing I'm just waiting for an underdog to be one nil up with 10 minutes to go in the cup final and put on five defenders to, to match the five <laughs> defenders already out there. So we see 10 defenders and a goalkeeper trying to see out a game. That would at least be tactical, wouldn't it? And that might actually yeah. be interesting. You know, Gregor talked about Barnsley there and, you know, he wrote loads of great pieces on it, but that, that was a tactical thing. And it actually didn't, it wasn't a change in system. It was just to freshen, to freshen it up in terms of the players that were on there in terms of their fitness. But yeah, I mean, a five, five, two lines of defence I mean, I'd be all for that. That's about the only time I'd see it. I'd be interested. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's just I just think it's 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 too much. I mean, you just your game plan goes out the window if you see everything going wrong, and you can just basically say, right, lads, we'll switch. Not just with the players you've got on the pitch, but you can bring on the best placed players to play a certain way because you've got five changes. I mean, it just it makes no sense. And and strangely, I don't know how these people get into this IFAB room. But they seem to make so many decisions that so many people that like football probably would disagree with and come out saying it's good for the game. I can't take it anymore. Like I say, game's gone. Game's gone. Not the podcast, obviously. We'll be back on Monday, so don't you worry about that. Uh, Gregor, uh, Tom and Johnny, thank you very much for joining me for the past hour. Thank you all for listening as well. We will be back on Monday. Big Champions League week coming as well. So make sure you're subscribed and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism as well. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Uh, We will see you on Monday. Take care. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.